The University of Central Florida Office of Diversity and Inclusion brings you Matters of Diversity with Dr. V. With your host, Dr. S. Kent Butler. And our guests, Kristen Moten and Laura Valley. And now, Dr. B. Hotep, and welcome to Matters of Diversity with Dr. B. And I'm glad to have you all as part of our audience today. Today, we are bringing in two phenomenal individuals from UCF community, Laura Valley and Christine Moulton. And so let me share a little bit about who they are and what they bring to the table. So Laura has been with Green Dot UCF and Victim Services since 2017. She receives her master's degree in higher education policy studies from UCF in 2017 and is currently pursuing her doctorate through FSU's online higher education program. Laura has extensive experience working with higher education and is a trained victim advocate who is passionate about making UCF the safest college campus. Christine has worked with the victim services field for over 25 years and has worked at UCF since 2002. She has a master's degree in criminal justice from UCF and taught both criminal justice victim related and women's studies courses for the past 15 years. Christine is a past board member of the regional coordinator for the Florida Crisis Response Team, along with other national affiliations. So please join me in welcoming Christine and Laura. How are you both doing? How's the day going for you today? The day has been going wonderful. Um, today is our, our denim day, so we're really excited to be able to talk to you today on you know such an important day. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. You know, um, all things being what they are, I am fine. And so, um, denim day. Tell me a little bit about denim day. What's going on with denim day? Yeah. So back in 1992 in Italy, an Italian Supreme Court ruled that an act of sexual violence did not occur. Um, and that ruling stood because they argued that the woman's jeans were too tight so that in order for her to be assaulted, she had to have helped the perpetrator take them off. So the next day in protest, everyone in the Supreme Court wore jeans to stand in solidarity with individuals who are victimized by sexual violence. And since 2016, UCF has been acknowledging Denim Day. Um, we have a signed proclamation from Dr. Cartwright and his wife indicating you know, that today is denim day and that we support survivors of sexual violence. And we encourage everyone to wear some denim today to support. That, wow. And I'm, I'm just flabbergasted that that even came out of anyone's thought process um, around trying to come up with a reason why someone wasn't sexually assaulted. And I mean, the trials and tribulations that women especially have had to gone through or have gone through because of someone's backwards thinking in some regards to what constitutes an assault. And uh, wow, so what's your interpretation of Christine? I mean, look, not Christine. What's your interpretation of Denim Day, Christine? Oh, you're, you're muted. Okay. So Laura's part of my staff and she leads this initiative every year. And I think it's important for us as a program and a university to let uh, victims know that we are here to support them. And, you know, that, um, you know, from the top down that, you know, President Cartwright and prior presidents have supported this particular initiative and have supported our program. And one of the great things about the UCF Victim Services Program is we are very highly regarded throughout other university and higher education communities because we have had a program since the late 1990s. This is not a new initiative. And um, I work on other similar initiatives on a national level, but to have the credibility to be able to go and help other higher ed institutions implement advocacy programs and other law enforcement agencies too. It's just a privilege because we are doing such a great job here at UCL. So um, when you think about the, the number of individuals here at UCF who are battling, um, I guess, 
individuals who have been dealing with sexual assault or just people who have just harassed them and things along those lines, mm -hmm. what should our concern be as, as leaders here on campus to support and to help people move forward? Well, the support is really truly important, but one of my pet peeves the whole time I've been in this field is that we spend a lot of time and money um, telling and informing victims how not to be victims, mm. right? Okay. How much time and effort do you see invested in telling people not to be potential perpetrators? <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? Exactly so, right. So and that's the value of Green Dot that Green Dot brings to UCF that everybody had, no matter who they are, no matter what the situation, that there is somebody in that space that has the ability and can obtain the training on how to be a proactive bystander in a situation. And Laura can talk a little bit about the three Ds of Green Dot and how we have, we started this just over five years ago with a grant from the Florida Department of Health. And we, we started with the Greek community uh, using the pebble in the pond theory. You know, if, if you start in the middle and you do it right, the ripples go out into the community. And we wanted to start it there because we know a lot of members of the Greek community involved in SGA and in student clubs, groups, and organizations and can help spread that word. And due to Laura's efforts and the team of trainers that we have had uh, at UCF, we have been deemed the most successful program in the state. You know, and that's high accolades for the amount of time and effort that go into scheduling, committing to doing these trainings, which are often nights and weekends for student groups um, personal lives get put on hold, you know, you have to plan your life around all of these activities because we, Laura never says no to anybody. So, um, <laughs> wait, 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 be careful. She how does you a great that. job. <laughs> she is phenomenal. And with COVID, we had to transition to doing it online. Okay. It was another challenge. And she has succeeded at doing that as well. And so we are well-placed to go into the fall on a new grant um, with a slightly different focus, but still including Green Dot. And Laura is going to be leading the charge on that too. Great, great, Laura. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what your efforts are bringing forth? Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to touch on something you had asked about ways to support survivors, people who are going through sexual violence and like, where do we, where do we start? Mm -hmm. And Christina had mentioned that it, you know, it's a top-down initiative. And when I think about that, I think about how college campuses have so many social norms about them. And there's a lot of social norms that exist about sexual violence, bystander intervention as a whole. Um, and those are often what fuels individuals to believe certain things about sexual violence and then ultimately, you know, perpetrate and commit these crimes. And that's what Green Dot, the bystander program, really takes a look at is what are the current social norms that exist around violence prevention and bystander intervention. And on a college campus, there's many, I mean, probably the most common one that we hear all the time is that women are victims and men are perpetrators. And that doesn't just exist on a college campus, that, that's out in the community as well. Um, another really big one is with Greek life. So Greek life has a lot of social norms surrounded around them. Um, a lot of that's from the way that we are born and raised, grow up seeing TV shows, media, movies about what Greek life does on campus. And so students are hesitant, not knowing what they're going to experience because all they've seen on movies and TV shows is you know crazy parties and people being hazed. Um, yeah. And then a huge social norm is that no one's gonna do anything. No one's going to believe me. Um, someone else will intervene, so I don't have to. I mean, truly the list goes on and on and on. And so what Green Dot is really trying to do is to change that social norm into, you know, no one has to do, or no, not one person has to just do one thing. We want everyone to do something, even if it's something really small. And yeah. you can be a bystander and help out survivors in a reactive way. So you're seeing it happening in front of you you're getting those red flags, I'm going to address it. Right. You can also do it 
in a proactive way. So how are you as an individual, as a student organization, as a university, how are you gonna to communicate to people that you're a safe place, that you take care and support survivors, and that if something happens, that there's someone that they can go to? I like that. And so you remind me of something that my mentor has sold into me and that I say now, um, what is your 5%? And what of that 5% are you willing to give your 100% towards, right? You can't solve the whole problem, but you can do certain things. So what 5% are you willing to take a stab at, right? And, and then put your full force behind, right? And so, and that is really what I took from what you just shared just now. It's like, if you see something on the street, now you might not be able to help every single person on every street corner or every place in the world, but on that particular street that you're on, you might be able to help that person. So then you put your full force behind that and support and help that particular person and that person and when, and where they are in need at right then and there. Yes, absolutely. You said it perfectly. That's exactly what it's about. You know, so much of the conversation about bystander intervention, there's a lot of perceptions that it's one person who does this crazy act, like they'll separate people who are fighting, they'll lift a car up the ground. You know, that's oh. what we see, like we, we see superhero movies, but you can, be, you can be a bystander in the simplest ways, just asking someone if they're okay. Yeah. That check-in, mm -hmm. reaching out to different resources to see what their options are. Um, and there's some even like really fun, interesting ways too. Like we hear stories all the time of students who will pretend to like spill a drink on somebody to prevent them from doing something or they'll change the song if they're at a party and they see something, a little red flaggy going on, they'll change the song that gets everyone excited and then it distracts everybody. Um, that's a pretty common one too. Oh, that's pretty neat. That's, that's, good, that's good advice right there um, <laughs> to think about that. I mean, you know, you don't want to spill your five, $10 drink on somebody, but if it's necessary to save a life, you go, you go for it, right? Yes, and listen, you can always request a free glass of water and pretend it's a drink. Nope, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, right, so, 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 right, you can really be thoughtful in your moment. So it doesn't have to be immediate, it just has to be done. Right. And so I think that's what I just took from what you just shared. It's like, okay, you see something happening, don't think that you have to jump to it that very second. But if it does take you going to the bar to get that glass of water, go to the bar, get that glass of water and make it happen before it escalates to a point where it can't be um, salvageable or, or you can help the situation out. That right. Yeah, exactly. And we spend, I would say, a majority of our time during our Green Dot trainings strategically planning different ways to intervene for different scenarios. Now, granted, I cannot predict every single scenario that's ever gonna happen. I'm sure no one could. Right. Um, but we really help work with our students and faculty and staff to think about ways that they, they can intervene if something happens okay. and we practice it mm -hmm. to help them get more comfortable if it were to actually happen in real life. Because okay. sometimes when the situation's happening in real life, we're not always able to predict what our body does. Yeah. Some people we do about eight hours later, we're like, man, I could have did, oh, if I just yes. said this, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. and so we talk about that. We talk about why that exists, why that happens, mm -hmm. and then we plan. Okay, what do we do? When we start feeling those stressors, those barriers that are preventing us from getting involved, okay. even with all of that happening at the same time, what is something super small you can do? And for a lot of people, it's a phone call, maybe taking pictures, um, or, you know, getting a a glass of water. Every situation is different. Right. Um, but so that means think fast on your feet. Do something, yeah. still do something, and but you, you have to be mindful of, of what your circumstances are. So let me ask you a question for the person who's fearful, right? So I'm quite sure you, you help in training people who, who say, I would have done so-and-so, but that was a big person and I didn't want to get hit. Oh, I didn't. I, I feared that my life might be in jeopardy. What? Do, how do you help those individuals jump over that hurdle um, when they when they come to it? Yeah. So that is a great question, and my answer might sound a little crazy, but I okay. promise it's not. So I acknowledge their fears, and I don't ask them to get over that. I don't ask them like if they are at the point in their bystander intervention where they fear for their life or their physical safety. Mm -hmm. What that communicates to me is like their body is telling them that they're going to get in trouble 
And I'm not going to go against that. And they shouldn't go against that. You know, they're, they're intuitive. They should, they're, if they are getting those signs, then I'm not going to ask you to get over that. But what I will ask you to do is find a safe place to go Mm -hmm. and call someone that, you know, is trained to help in those situations. Or if you're with a group of people, Mm-hmm. maybe all of you together can go and intervene. But, you know, unfortunately in this day's world, we have no idea if someone might ever physically hurt us, if they have a weapon. Yeah. And I want to make sure that the individuals are like, they are safe before they can help someone else. That, that makes a lot of sense. Christine, uh, what are your thoughts about some of the things we just talked about? Oh, I, 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 I'm fully supportive of what the training that Laura is doing. And it was really exciting for us to be able to bring this grant opportunity to UCF and to see it bloom and become so successful. And we've, Laura and her team have trained so many people at UCF, students, faculty, and staff, um, because it's not restricted to just students, because bystander intervention can also be used in the workplace. Yeah. And it's, it's not just in a, a, a bar or at a party that, you know, there are uh, things going on in the workplace where those same skills can be utilized as well. So it's been important for us as part of our strategy to make sure that we have included um, faculty and staff. And mm-hmm. uh, kudos to uh, Mary Beth Ehaus when she was here because when we implemented, initially implemented Green Dot, she was very, very adamant that everybody in SDES, faculty and staff, were going to be trained in that model. Nice. And, you know, that was a great start because then we can say, well, SDES has had the training. What about your division? <laughs> so, um, and, and it has been successful. Now, the staff and faculty training is not as lengthy as the student version. Right. But it serves to highlight how people can be a bystander in their own workspace and then take that skill out into their real life, too. I mean, I've used those skills um, when I've been in publics, when I've been out and about and not in a confrontational manner. Mm-hmm. Um, and we all have. We've all, as we had that training, said, you know, yeah, I've used this skill. And one of the important things with the program is to get feedback from people that have utilized those skills. Right, right. So I want to go back to Denim Day. Okay. And the question I'm going to ask is, is based off of, you know, the reason why it had to come to be in the first place. Mm-hmm. There are some people who are thick-headed, right? <laughs> there are some people who just don't get it. It's hard to understand why a person wouldn't get it, but how do we help people who have that block, who have that, I know in the Johari's window type situation, they have that blind spot, right? That um, they just don't see sexual assault or, uh, or sexual harassment as a thing, right? So in part of that training or in part of our understanding of how to get around this, is there something that could be done? Is there something that is evidence-based that helps people who are thick-headed get it? That's a great question, and I Mm -hmm. wish that I had the perfect answer for it. But what I will say is that through evidence-based programs that I'm familiar with, Green Dot being one of them, there is a common denominator, which is in the first 10-15 minutes, you are establishing a personal connection to the problem with the individual who's in the space. Mm. When it comes to sexual violence, a lot of times what we have seen is that specifically men are led to believe that they are the problem. They're always the problem. And they're oftentimes talked to as if they're the problem. So we see a lot of students come to students and faculty and staff, but mostly our students come into the training thinking they don't need this because they've heard this 5 million times before elementary school, middle school, high school, they know. Okay. And so what we have to do is find a way to get them to connect the missing link. Like, why is this important to you? Like, yes, you might be here because your organization is making it mandatory, but why is power-based personal violence? Why is sexual violence? Why is this important? And then why is it important to you? 
And what we do in our program for that specifically is we actually have individuals, they will write down an experience that they know of, either they've had personally or someone that they know mm -hmm. who's had it. And they write it down. It's all anonymous. They don't put any identifying information on it. Fold it up. And then throughout the trainings, we read it out loud. Um, and that has been a pretty powerful experience of students realizing, wait a minute, the person sitting next to me might have wrote that. We also have um, anonymous polling questions throughout the training where, so I'll put up all the statistics about sexual violence and it's changing every day, but I'll put it up and I'll say, these are you know, statistics like one in five women will be sexually assaulted by the time they graduate college. One in 10 men will be sexually assaulted by the time they graduate college. And then even after all that, I say, you know what? These are national statistics. What about us, all of us in this room? Like, let's make our own. And so then I ask those questions oh, wow. in the training. And then they submit their answers anonymously. And then the statistics come up on the screen and they'll see, oh, wow, 50% of us in the room have been assaulted. Wow. Or 80% of us in the room know someone who has been assaulted. Wow. And that really centers them in the space of, okay, this isn't about me anymore. Mm. This is about all the people in this room that have experience with it. Well, I have like, relationship with, because I think there's something about proximity. There's something about yes. being in that space, but it's kind of sad, don't you think? that people who don't get it, don't recognize that they have people in their lives, like their mothers and their perhaps daughters and, um, or someone in their life that maybe or fall victim to, and that it doesn't have to be blatant smack in the face that, okay, like personally, my sister was, a, a, was assaulted when she was in college, right? It shouldn't be that I know about sexual assault because my sister was assaulted. Mm -hmm. I should know about it because it's a fact. People are assaulted. And, and so I should be about wanting no one to be assaulted. Not that I shouldn't want people to not be assaulted because my sister was. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we see this with so many different forms of violence, not just sexual violence, is that people often don't realize it's a problem or care about it until it happens within their sphere of influence. Mm -hmm. And we never know what a student's sphere of influence is. Right. I, I will say, I notice when I'm doing trainings with homogenous groups, like usually like a Greek organization where all of them are in the same organization or a class where they've all been in the same class together, those trainings tend to be a little bit more intimate because they know the individuals a lot more um, there's some type of familial bond there. And so they feel a stronger connection to these individuals. Um, but I mean, you're, you're absolutely correct. It's the fact that anyone can be assaulted is you know, the problem. Yeah. And, and how do we stop minimalizing what somebody else's feelings of assault are? You know, you know, I hear people saying, oh, you know, that's, that's not an assault or oh, you weren't harassed there. How, how do we not valid, how do we stop not validating people um, when they tell you that this is something that they experience? Well, I think we just have to continue with the initiatives that we have and to, but again, you know, we, we have to get people to the point through training or, um, you know, presentations that, that we've been doing to, to recognize that the person sitting next to them or living in the same dorm room suite as them, you know, can have already had an experience. And when you're watching a movie or you're going through social media and you're minimizing what other people are sharing, again, to use those bystander techniques and say, hey, that's not appropriate. It's not cool. Yeah. Right? You're, you're, you don't know how that person feels. And it goes to stop blaming the victim for what happened to them because victims truly blame themselves quite enough. Enough, right. You know, so I think holding each other accountable for minimizing or not even using the kind of language that, that blames people or totally disregards what happens to people and the consequences that they have for what happens to them. Mm -hmm. We know from the surveys that are done both nationally and here that 25% of our incoming freshman class have had prior victimization before they show up at UCL. Wow. Right. Mm -hmm. And prior victimization increases the risk of future victimization. 
right? So when you look at those statistics and the fact that we are an organization of 70 plus thousand students now, that's a pretty large number. Yeah. And, and we know even in our program that um, we, we never get to make contact with everybody that's had a traumatic event happen to them while they've been at UCF. Yeah. And yet we are available 24 hours a day. We have a hotline and a text line. So, you know, we do have students texting an advocate at two and three o'clock in the morning. Mm. And, and, and we are available, but I think we have to start holding people accountable for that dialogue and saying, right. you know, when you're saying those types of things, you're also hurting the people in your social circle and in your familial circle because they may not have shared with you what their experiences have been. Right, right. So is there a danger in being too hypervigilant? I think there can be. I think there can be. Um, I think that um, it's important to understand as well what your own comfort level is and um, um, what you feel safe with. But you can also, uh, and we've seen it with, with clients that their experiences make them completely change their social life, hmm. right? So, hmm. you know, if they did go out and they went out to bars and clubs and parties, then they become socially isolated because of their fear of this happening to them again, dependent upon the response that they received either from the group club or organization that they belong to and their social circle. Mm -hmm. See people that will engage in what most of us would deem to be um, appropriate types of physical activity, but when done to an extreme, it's dangerous, mm. right? Because they're choosing not to address and get appropriate support for what happened to them. They are just internalizing it and jogging for hours and hours or changing their eating patterns, um, et cetera, which, you know, again, that, that's just telling us that they, they truly have not taken the opportunity to utilize the resources that are available to deal with the situation and yeah. ways to have more uh, beneficial coping mechanisms. Wow. So the laws that are in place that support people who have been assaulted, mm -hmm. they change over time. Um, but as they stand right now, current day, are they still problematic? Oh, yes. Or are they, you know, are they laws that really support the, the victim? Well, there is the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. And then of course, because we are a college campers, there's Title IX. So the criminal justice system, I mean, anybody that comes to or talks with an advocate at UCF and they are confidential, it's not reporting, it's disclosing. Um, anybody that speaks with an advocate will be informed of all of the choices that they have. Mm -hmm. So that can include reporting to the police, reporting to Title IX, uh, it could include another law enforcement jurisdiction outside of UCF because we have a lot of students that live off, obviously off campus and in different counties. Mm -hmm. And it could be not making a choice at all. And that is in itself a choice, right? So, you know, and, and that choice can change. So if they say, no, I don't want to report to the police, it's often I don't want to get the other person in trouble. I don't want to get them kicked out of school, but... I'm prepared to go and do a non-reporting rate kit. So if at in a future point, I change my mind, I have the evidence. Okay. Right? Um, that requires when they report completely giving all of the story to another person. Mm -hmm. So the first person they share their story with is probably going to be a very close friend or roommate. Mm -hmm. and, and I used to teach this class. So I would go through this because people would say, well, you know, it's not a big deal to report, but it really is when you when you construct that timeline and you understand it's not one or two people that that victim has to tell that story to. It's 10, 20, 30, 50 people. Re-traumatizing. Right. Re-traumatizing, yeah. It is 
traumatizing. It is traumatizing and they get tired. Mm -hmm. And they will sometimes stop and say, look, I don't want to do this anymore. Okay. I'm over Is there a statute of limitations? No, well, if, if they're a minor, no. Um, any any time over the age of 18, the rules, the law was changed in Florida that um, because we have people that were victimized as minors that come here, right? And um, they may be taking a class where this is a topic of conversation in the class. It could be a, a, an academic moment, but to them it's traumatizing. Okay. Right. And so um, it trigger, they have triggers. And so then they may reach out to one of us or they may go to the counseling center and, you know, hopefully they get the resources that they need if they go to other places. But in some cases, it unfortunately results in them dropping out of school. So in, in a very real sense, is, is, there a, a, is there a mandated reporting situation that comes into play at any no, time? No, nobody is mandated to report anything but child and elder abuse. Okay. So they came to you at... 18 or 17, let's say that they're, uh, you know, a freshman and they get in here at 17 and they relay a story that happened to them at five. Right. There's not a mandated reporting mechanism that goes into play there? Yes, there is because they're one, they're still a minor. Okay. 17. Mm -hmm. We are mandated to contact the local police department and also to contact their parents. However, we have to be very careful because if the parent was the perpetrator, then we are definitely going to contact law enforcement and let them lead that investigation and follow up with that. Um, however, we've had it be coaches or other individuals in that person's life mm -hmm. that may not still have access to children. Right. Reporting to DCF is mandatory at UCF. Right. So does that involve consent? No. Okay. The victim does not have to give consent for that. And we inform them that we are mandatory reporters. If okay. one, they were victimized as a child, or if somebody comes to us because they're in a dating or domestic violence situation mm -hmm. and have children, then we have to explain to them, again, the mandatory reporting. Right. The way we approach it is we want them to stay in the room when we have that conversation so that they are very clear on what information is given, what is asked, and they can often provide information they didn't share with us, like the age and name of children, et cetera. And we make very clear to them that DCF is not going to swoop in and take their children away, okay. but they can offer them other resources that are not available anywhere else. Excellent. So Laura, I have a question for you in regards to um, a victim who comes to you and is just um, in a state of being where they, they can't communicate with maybe a parent or a close friend or spouse or um, significant other of some sort, um, how do you at Green Dot support those individuals and help them to kind of share their narrative or share their story with their loved ones when they are scared to or, or, or concerned about doing so? Yeah, I mean, sharing your story is a really intimate moment. And from a victim's perspective, they might still be blaming themselves. They might feel like they're not ready to tell the story, but they might feel like they have to at the same time because other things are happening in the background. Mm -hmm. So other people might find out about it. Um, or maybe their peers are talking about it behind their back. And so they're like, I'm going to get ahead of this and, and I need to talk to someone. It can be a really difficult conversation at times, especially when that student is not ready to disclose to people. And as an advocate in my green dot trainings, no matter my role, I'm not gonna force someone to share their story. It's not my job to know the ins and outs of their story. It's mm -hmm. my job to support them, believe them, and then get them connected to individuals to help build their support network. So if they're talking to me about how they want to get to that point where they're ready to talk to someone. Mm -hmm. My first question for them truly is whether or not, or I'm trying to figure out if they want to report or not report, because if they are not ready to go down the reporting option, I'm not going to present them with the options to do that. Um, I would rather give them victim advocates information, counseling center. I'm immediately assessing their safety. How's their physical well-being? 
if not like we're, you know, we're going to go to the health center. They're also a confidential place. Um, but really not forcing them to tell me things they don't want to tell me. I just want to make sure that they're safe. So but and, let me ask you in a different way. Like, yeah. Say they want to tell their parents, say something devastating yeah. happened to them mm-hmm. and they just don't feel, I mean, they want to tell their parents, they just need some support in going to do so. Mm-hmm. Is Green Dot prepared or is it able to go with them in that circumstance? That's really what I wanted to find out. Okay, yeah, yeah, thank you for clarifying. So Green Dot specifically, no, that's not something that we really talk about. Now, victim advocates, yes, that's a conversation we can have in a meeting with the student um, where you know we can help them strategize different ways to have that conversation, maybe have them practice writing it down, um, just really preparing them for what that might look like before, during, and after. Okay. Now, obviously, we are not going to be there when they have that conversation with the parents. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't know what's going to happen, but we want to let them know what might happen, mm-hmm. what might not happen, mm-hmm. and really just try and assuage any fears that they have and let them know that afterwards they can always contact us if they need anything after that. Um, but definitely that's more of the advocate's more jurisdiction, I'd say, than Green okay. Dot. Yeah, because I, I think that, you know, when somebody starts bonding with you, they sometimes maybe want or put more on you than you can give. And so what you're sharing is that we're there to support you to a certain point and we will do what we can to get you to that space. But um, in, in, in a real sense, we're not gonna go to your home with you and, and sit down with you and, and help Correct. you have that conversation with your parent. Correct. Absolutely not. We are all about empowering the students, faculty and staff to make their own decisions. We will never make a decision for them, okay. but we will support them in what that decision is and let them know, you know what that might look like. And have, um, there been, have there been situations where after they've talked to someone that those people called you for support and advice? But because we are confidential, when we learn that um, a student is in that situation or, or a client is in that situation, we will also ask them to sign a release of confidentiality, mm-hmm. the people that they are okay with is sharing information about. Otherwise, if a person calls and says, my son or daughter told me they have been sexually assaulted, you know, and that they were working with victim services. Again, we have to remember we're confidential and we will neither confirm or deny that's the situation. Right, right. But we would say these are our general services because we never want to say to a parent, well, if your child signs a release of information, then we can talk to you because then that puts pressure from the parent on the student. Yeah. Right? Right. So we have to be very careful how we have those conversations And I will be honest with you, in situations where students have already told a parent, Mm -hmm. parents come to the office to meet with the advocate with their student, those are the most difficult conversations to have are with the parent, not with the student. Okay. So let me me really quickly um, pull Laura in, because I know Laura has to take off here for a second. (laughs) Um, Laura, any last minute words that you want to share uh, before you have to take off? I just, you know, obviously, thank you so much for this opportunity. It's just been great, wonderful talking to you. And really for everyone watching, know that Victim Services, we are here for you 24-7. Anytime you call us, text us, even during holidays, we are here and we are ready to talk to you and we're ready to train you. If you want to go through Green Dot trainings, please come sign up. And we also do events. We'd love to see you out at events, but really know that you're not alone and that we believe you, and it's never too late to talk to any of us. Excellent. Well, thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day. I appreciate you coming in and hanging out with us. Thank you so much for having me. No worries at all. We'll have to have you back. We'll have to have you back. Yes, absolutely. Definitely. So, um, Christine, when you um, find these young people like Laura um, and mentor them and bring them into the fold, what's that like for you? Oh, I love it. I really love it. I really encourage people to bloom and, and, and find their passion. You know, some people come into this line of work because they've had an experience of their own. Right. So they want to help other people through that process. 
And that can be good and bad because there are things you can't ask when you're hiring people. <laughs> Let you kind of know right. at. And so right. sometimes you don't learn that until after you've hired mm -hmm. them. So then we have to have the conversation of you cannot put your situation on somebody else. Okay. You have to let somebody else, you have to let that client make their own choices and their own decisions. You cannot, you know, look at your own experiences and put those experiences on somebody else because everybody's experience is different. Everybody's right. situation is different. Right. Everybody has lived a different life. And I always say, I have not lived your life. You have not lived mine. But if you need me, I'm here to help you and support you and find you the resources and options that will best suit you in the situation that you're in right now. Wow. Right. So, you know, um, this has been a career passionate for you. You've been involved in this over the years. Right. Uh, how do you take care of yourself? How do you not burn out? Would you believe I'm probably one of the few persons that lost a lot of weight over the COVID telecommute? <laughs> and the reason... The reason for that, I'm a passionate DIYer. So um, before, just before we went on um, telecommute, I had just started remodeling my kitchen. Okay. So I ended up remodeling half my house. So, um, and I do a lot of the work myself. Okay. So I have a passion for buying tools. <laughs> so. Okay, okay. Do you do that work elsewhere? Do you come to other people's homes? <laughs> <laughs> Friends that ask me that same question. <laughs> we have a kitchen but, project but, that we're looking forward to. <laughs> <laughs> but I love it. I love the I love the work. I love using a sledgehammer to knock out a wall or you know, painting or what whatever it might be. I love doing that kind of work. So that that is what I invest my time in. You know, mm -hmm. I have very close friends, you know, that help, but I I just that's kind of like it's like kids planning the mud kind of philosophy. That's yeah. where you get everything else and you just focus on what you're doing right now. Nice, nice. So that's that's good self-care. Yeah. That's yeah. great. That's great. What's your yeah. what's your what's your most favorite project that you worked on in, in terms of doing that? Whew. I would have to say realistically my kitchen, because I mean I've lived in this house like nearly 30 years and it was right. really time. And um I wasn't quite prepared to start it at the beginning of the year. And a friend said to me, well, let me just pull this tile up and see how easy it's going to be. There's no turning back because you had this no, tile. No. <laughs> no, no. But um, I mean, it, you know, it just turned out really well. I'm really happy. I moved things around in my kitchen, new floors, new cabinets, you know, new flooring throughout the house. Nice. Well, the old popcorn ceiling came down, all of those kinds of things. So, and then over the Christmas holidays, because, you know, I had not taken much of my personal leave because of COVID. I didn't have to take all those days off when other people had to come in the house and do stuff. Uh -huh. I remodeled my bedroom too. So oh, wow. um, <laughs> nothing wrong with that. I think that, you know, one of the things that's really funny that we found during the pandemic is that people either did a lot of outside work with their garden and, right. uh, or they did a lot of inside the house work. So right. they, they say that uh, Home Depot and Lowe's and all kinds of stores like that really picked up a lot of business. Yes, they did, especially from me, because I've got I live just off of Alafaya and I've got both really close. So yeah, yeah. if one doesn't have it, the other one will. So yeah, that's true. Working on my yard now. So that's the current project. I think I don't so I I live in Toyota and so um off of um Mitchell Hammock, Red Bug Lake Road is both Lowe's and and Home Depot. Right. And they're positioned horribly oh. in my eyes because you have if you go to Home Depot first and you need to go to Lowe's, you have to do all this. Right, you know, right. I know exactly Lowe's. what you mean. So you have to yep. make a decision to go to Lowe's first and see if it's there, and then that's an easier pathway to go. That's kind of yep. sad to have to, your driving pattern have to deal with that. But right, right. I, I make my choices of what store I go to first for the need, <laughs> which one will have it, and then you know, with hopes that right. I, if I have to go to the other one. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I have a similar situation down here. 
yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I, I love it. I, I have no problems in doing it. And, um, you know, any, any project that allows me to go and look at tools, mm -hmm. you know, if I need to buy a new tool, I'm good. So yeah, excellent. So how do you instill that in your, in your workers, the people working under you and supervise? How do you, those who don't well, understand self-care? One, one of the things is that no matter um, what my staff do, and I know that they're on call, they're on call a week at a time. Oh, wow. They only ever work 40 hours a week, right? So if they get called out at two o'clock in the morning and they're out six hours because they uh, had a client that wanted to go down to the sexual assault treatment center for a rape kit, then, you know, they comp that out the next day, or they might come in the office for a couple of hours and do some paperwork, make some follow-up calls, check in with the client. And then, but by the end of the pay week, by the end of Thursday at 4.30, they've only worked 40 hours. So that includes them getting hotline calls. It includes them getting texts at two, three, and four in the morning when students tend to be away, wide awake and wanted to talk to somebody. Okay. Um, you know, so, and again, make sure you take the time, make sure you relax that I'm always checking in on them. And if they have a call out that's difficult, I'm always on call for them. Okay. Always 365, you know, so. If they need me to talk something through or it's complicated, call me. We will figure it out. Mm -hmm. They're and never so, out there alone. So is this something that um, you have a, a strong budget for? Or are, you, are you seeking donations from foundations and things along those lines? Or is this something that UCF has really compensated you all well for? Or is this something that you are always struggling to try to support um, the infrastructure? Well, I do have to say Chief Metzger is a huge supporter and uh, of our program, but a lot of our advocacy positions are grant funded. Mm -hmm. So, um, and unfortunately that funding has to be reapplied for every year. So I've become a really good grant writer in my time here at UCF. Um, so right now we have two grants. We have the grant that funds the Green Dot program and then we have what is called the VOCA grant, which funds um, to some degree, most of the advocate positions. Okay. So, um, you know, but at the same time, we have vehicles that we, the advocates can take home. So they're on call, they're in unmarked vehicles because we're part of the police department. Okay. And, um, you know, so that's, that's truly helpful. It really helps us do our job. So whether we're taking somebody to the courthouse or to the sexual assault treatment center, mm -hmm. community meetings, going to meetings on campus and meeting, meeting clients in other people's offices. So it could be at CARES, it could be at CAPS, it could be a faculty member that has a student. We will come to them. They don't always have to come to us. So you, you just made a really good point that made me think about this. Um, because it's, this is about safety. It's not just about the safety of the person who has been victimized, right. but also you put yourselves in harm way right. when you go to support them. Right. And we're very clear, we have a safety plan. We have, we have safety protocols. We, um, though we're confidential, we will never go to a person's personal dorm room. We will never go in a personal apartment unless they have a law enforcement officer with them. So sometimes they get called out by law enforcement. Sometimes it may be that somebody that lives in a dorm room has gone down to an RA and disclosed something and the advocate is called. Now they can meet somebody in the RA's office because there are other people around, but they cannot go to that personal dorm room. Um, and what would the, what, so, so what, the decision? What's the, what's the purpose behind that again? Safety, it's safety for the victim and it's safety for the advocate because we don't know where that potential perpetrator is. So oh. particularly in dating and domestic violence situations, um, you don't want a, a, a perp that's left that might come back and then compromising the safety of both their partner and the advocate as well. Understood. So uh, we want to make sure that, we're, that the advocates are always safe. So we have very strict protocols about that. Even if they're taking a client to the courthouse they have to call dispatch and let dispatch know that they're transporting somebody to the courthouse for a hearing or a filing. And then they check in again when they get back. 
So the job is definitely multifaceted. You yes. have a lot on your plate when it comes to yeah. doing this. Yeah. And then you might have a clientele. I don't know if you, how you call um, the people you're working with. Um, it could be quite large. Yes. Um, especially if, you, if you're on call and you're getting these. I'm, I'm assuming that once somebody gets on call, that they they get um, then they start bonding with someone that comes to support them. Mm-hmm. You don't hand it off to another person because now they've bonded with you. So right. the slow can go up really high. It, it can. Um, but at the same time, we also have to be aware that, you know, you can't have that person on call 24 seven, 365, that there is an on call rotation and the advocates are very good about saying, look, I'm not on call next week, but if you need something, you can call me during the day. These are our regular business hours. You can send me an email. I will respond to it during regular business hours. But if it's an emergency, please call the hotline number and speak with another advocate. Okay. And sometimes they prefer the second advocate to the first advocate, and that's okay. That's okay. Okay. That's okay. Because we want them to be comfortable. We don't want, we don't ever want them to say, I'm not going to go back because I didn't connect with the person. And we tell them the same thing when we refer them to counseling. Mm-hmm. If you don't have a connection with the first counselor that you speak to, then ask to meet with somebody else. Mm-hmm. Don't give up. Don't give up because yeah. they clearly need some help. But we yeah. always encourage them that they have a choice in the matter. So um, if you were recruiting, mm-hmm. are you seeking more females, more males? Um, and what happens when you're dealing with people from the LGBTQ community? We have a great rapport with people from the LGBTQ community. A significant part of our clientele is out of the LGBTQ community. Uh, we have had male advocates in the past and they have been phenomenal, but they're very hard to recruit. Okay, right? I was wondering. To find, to find people that want to do the work um, because I can't say, well, you're running on call, but you're not going to do sex crimes work, you know, and it's traditionally women that will call and report sex crimes and they have to, it has to be the right kind of personality to be able to connect yeah. Yeah. With, with young women. And the last advocate, male advocate that I have, the, the victims would say, I love Brian. He makes me feel so safe. Okay. And that's the connection that we want them to have. We want them to feel safe with that. So that's, what, that's what my thought was. Like if a person is, um, is, is a victim of a male abuse, right? then they may not want a male right. counselor or someone who would be right. supportive that way. But they also, they might. Right. Depending on, like you yes. just said, the personality. The, the right person can make a big difference. So... You know, selecting the right kind of people for the job is really, really important. We don't do therapy. We're not counselors. We are strictly victim advocates. And so we don't need to hear the whole blow-by-blow story of what happened to someone in order to make them aware of the options and resources that are available to them because we're not investigators, right? So it's what that person chooses to share with us. But what we would like is a first name, and a safe way to contact them so that we can send them follow-up information and materials, do well-being checks, make sure they're following through on the resources that we provided to them and the recommendations that we made for other services. How long do those relationships last once you once you come into contact with them? What might be that, that duration? It really depends on what they choose to do. So if they choose to report to the police, that's going to be a longer relationship because the criminal justice system can be quite uh, extensive. It can take a long time, but then so can Title IX. That sometimes can also be quite extensive. So, um, but once once a person gets to the point where they are fine, they don't feel they want the advocate to check in anymore and they kind of want a space to move on, uh, we're not going to become harassers and be calling them every week saying, are you okay? Are you okay? Because that in itself can be a trigger. So it has its own natural progression. And we always say, okay, at any point that you have something to share or you want some additional support, always feel free to call back, you know, uh, and we have a cutoff point, whether that's 30, 60, 90 days, 120 days, um, when we feel that that client has kind of moved on a little bit further and is now self-motivated to 
access other resources on campus and in the community. So you have shared with me a wealth of information. Um, I, my last question to you before we, um, we close it out would be um, just uh, what has been your success story? What has been something that you've been most proud of in the work that you've been doing? Well, I do a lot. Since I've been here, again, before I came to UCF, I've, I'm a 9-11 responder. Right. Okay. So, um, so then of course we had Pulse and my team, my staff and I, we were the first advocates on boots on the ground at the hospital, working with those families and survivors and, and also supporting those family members with death notification that were given at the hospital. Yeah. Um, I have a passion for mass casualty response work. Um, and um, I was, uh, I always feel privileged when I get to do that um, because people share their personal stories about their loved one, about their situation. And then um, I, I got to go out to Vegas and help out at Vegas after that particular situation. Oh, yeah. Hmm? Uh, no, I was, uh, I, when you said Vegas, I said, okay, yes, I'm thinking about, you're talking about the mass shooting there. Yes, yes, yeah. the mass casualty event out there, the shooting, the, major, the shooting at the concert. So um, I'd never been to Vegas before, and I, I don't know that I would go back, but <laughs> <laughs> as an advocate, it's not, you know, it's not, the two don't necessarily go together, but anyway. <laughs> But, um, but, you know, I, I've worked with other agencies on developing protocols for mass casualty response, even here at UCF. Mm -hmm. um, we, we've certainly put together a good plan for that, um, even in the communities and, and, you know, around the country, I've done presentations on mass casualty response. So, um, and as part of that work, I also work with the FBI. Um, so that's been an opportunity that uh, has helped. Wow professionally so yeah, your extensive career there yeah i have but i'm retiring soon <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yeah but that's something that that'll bring up a whole new can of worms won't it no uh, potentially but i don't know if i want to go remodeled. there yeah how right. should be remodeled then right <laughs> so thank you so much i thank you and laura for being a part of the thank you today um again I, I don't think this word can get out more than enough um, so thank you for sharing. Thank you for your heart. Thank you for thank the you. service that you provide to the victims. Um, you know, you, I think everybody's not cut out for this work, but those who no. do, um, you know, I have to applaud uh, the, the efforts that you put forward because there is that need. And, mm -hmm. and there needs to be an education of people to understand right. what this really means. This is, right. this is not someone with a sob story no, this is something that, you know, they have been traumatized. There's something right. that they have to deal with in their life. Mm -hmm. and we should honor that and validate that and help them move. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and there are a lot of resources available. And, you know, I hope even for the people that watch this podcast that they have the realization that we are here as a resource for yeah. them and for the students that they serve. Um, you know, so faculty and staff being aware of what we do, mm -hmm. uh, as well as students, I think is just phenomenally important. I think sometimes what we do gets lost in the shuffle yeah. because no one ever really wants to perceive themselves as being a victim. Right. I, I, I turn that tide. We have bathroom stickers all over campus. You know, they're out there with the hotline number. And I will tell students, I will go in a classroom and ask them what the hotline number is and they can't tell me. Yeah. But and actually, I was going to ask you, you, before we leave this podcast, can you give us the hotline number? The hotline number is 407-823-1200. And the text line is 407-823-6868. And they are both 24-7. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. I definitely appreciate you being here. And for those of you looking to see our podcast on this coming Friday, we're going to be honoring National Volunteer Month, and we're going to have some UCF students here um, who are part of Volunteer UCF. And so please join us at one o'clock on Friday. Have a phenomenal rest of your days.
Thanks for listening to our show. This has been Matters of Diversity with Dr. B.